Hi, and welcome to the Fractal Marketing Podcast. My name is Jared Doyle, and on this show, I take marketing questions from listeners and provide answers so that everybody who tunes in can learn a little bit more about marketing and hopefully find some ideas for their business. Hi, and welcome to episode 10 of the Fractal Startup Marketing Podcast. My name is Jared Doyle, and I'm delighted that I've made it all the way to episode 10. I guess in podcasting land, that's not a long way in, but for myself, that was my initial goal. So I've taken the time as well this week to sort of reflect on the last 10 episodes, what has been working, what hasn't, some of the feedback I've received, and I want to take a slightly different direction with the podcast. My goal with the podcast is to provide you with actionable insights into Marcom, so marketing communication tactics that you can apply to your business as a founder. And my initial idea behind that was to, I guess, really focus on questions that were coming in from listeners or connections on LinkedIn. And I found it surprisingly hard to get those questions to come in. And that's not to say that the questions aren't out there. I think it's just really hard to frame the questions in the right way. So I had a lot of assist, a lot of success you know, with the simplicity of um, focusing on, say, SEO. That works quite well. But by and large, I've, I've found it, you know, I've had to sort of hustle. So what I'm going to look to do in the next few episodes, and I hope that it works, is to bring in marketing and communication professionals from around the Marcoms industry, from agency land, from creative firms, et cetera, and not, not people who necessarily specialize in startups. And the idea is that I want to try to bring their expertise, that expertise that sits outside of the startup land, and adapt it in a way that'll work for startups. So I hope that works. I hope that we I'm able to find some people or people that I know are willing to give of their time and we can change the strategies and the tactics that they have for multi-million dollar clients and condense the, the, the nuggets out of their advice that'll work for a startup. So I'll, I'll play the role as the, the startup founder asking the questions and, and get some details. But of course, I only mean, just thought of that this week, so I have no interview set up. So episode 10 will be a version of that, but it'll be me. And so I had to pick my own topic. And what I decided to do was I took the topic I was already looking at doing, which was pitch decks, and I was going to review some founder pitch decks on today's episode. And although I got a couple of people coming through and asking some questions, I thought to myself, well, it kind of gets into my dual track career where I've spent a lot of time in agency land. And one thing you do well when you're working in an ad agency is you get very good at pitch decks. You get very good at PowerPoint um, and presenting those. So I feel like I've got some domain expertise to share here from outside of startup land. Um, And that's what I'm going to do today. I'm going to run through what I see as the best way to put together a pitch deck for your startup. So to kick it all off, I think the first thing I'm going to say here is that everybody's an expert. It doesn't matter who you speak to. Everybody has an opinion on your pitch deck. Everyone will give you advice. Some of it good, some of it bad. Look, a lot of it's going to come down to your personality and the way you want to present it. So some of the things I run through here are going to be my ideas. They're not necessarily right. Some of them, or most of them, I'd say, are now considered to be standard practice. But when I get to the end of today's episode and I sort of review some classic startup pitch decks from companies like youtube and airbnb i think you'll start to sort of see and actually give you a lot of confidence that i mean their decks 
they didn't look great for starters. They were pretty ugly. But yeah, they didn't follow what we now consider to be standard practice either. So, you know, the main thing to take here is that this is all opinion. This will change. And if anything, at the moment, this is just the flavor of the month. This is the way investors and founders are pitching. So on one side, it helps to conform because it makes it easier for people to digest. On the other side, you're a founder, you're an innovator, you're disrupting. So, hey, why stick to the status quo here? A pitch deck, it's designed to be exactly that, pitched. One thing I can't stand is investors who want pitch decks emailed to them. A great pitch deck has very few words. It's all about the delivery. It's all about the founder being there. There could be entire slides which are nothing more than an image. Or, you know, a lot of the time will be image with five words. You can read through that kind of deck in 30 seconds. You're not going to get the essence. So I want to make a distinction here between, say, a business plan, an investment thesis, any kind of long detailed document. That's not what we're talking about here. What we're talking about is a pitch deck. So when you design this, the idea is you're going to be standing up there, ideally with a clicker in your hand, presenting it to somebody. That's what this is. This isn't all the answers to your business. This is getting somebody interested in what you're wanting to do. You're going to have investors who want to get into all the details. And look, that's fine to a degree. But the one thing I would say about those investors are, if you don't win their hearts before you try to convince their heads, you're probably not going to get there. And it's a natural reaction. You know, investors want to believe that most of their decisions are driven by their head and there's logic. But look, in reality, we're primal beasts. We use the very middle part of the, the primal part of the brain that, that's the fight or flight. And that's what we have to appeal to. And that's what we need to convince. You can always go and dig out the detail later. So this is very much about winning somebody onto your idea and what you want to achieve. So when you start this kind of a deck, the first thing you want to do is you want to start with a story. This is, this is a human to human interaction at the end of the day. The numbers all happen later, but you need to get whoever the investor or the person you're pitching to, to come along for the journey. That's, you know, and that's really what sales is. I mean, it's nothing more than even marketing to a degree. It's being a good storyteller. And a great story is one that someone can relate to. A great story is one that someone can get emotional about, passionate about. They can feel what you feel. And that happens when you put yourself at the center of the story is a great way to do it. So you make your intro not about standing up and introducing your name. Like to me, that's sort of a death of an introduction. So if you stand up and go, hi, my company is, my name is, that's very sort of grade school level pitching. What I want is straight into a story and that story needs to revolve all around the problem. So you're trying to paint a picture in their mind's eye about what the day in the life of a customer might be or how you came to this conclusion that you wanted to run this kind of business. If you get that right, you've got a chance to continue the rest of the pitch. The most important part of your pitch is your start. The only way you're going to get past, or sorry, the only way you're going to get any kind of investment or interest in your business if you don't have a great start and you don't have a great story is if you've got some absolutely phenomenal traction numbers at the end or sort of revenue. If you have that, that will kind of cover over almost anything else you do that isn't right. But what we want to do is we want to get them right from the start. So we want to do a story, we want a human story 
about how you got involved with the business, why you've got some drive behind it. This is loosely around the vision of your company. They want to know why you got into this business. All the detail happens a bit later, but you've got to get the investors and everybody on that journey. And that story is just going to be the most important part. And you'll fine tune it over time, but that's what you need to do. And that story encases the problem. So the problem is a very normal way to start. But without the story, it can fall a little bit flat. But nevertheless, what we're doing here is we're defining a problem. And once you've got that problem defined, that's kind of you're into the business and you're off and running. So after you've defined your problem, what you want to do is start to create the idea of where the world's going to move to. You want to create and deliver your vision for the future about how the world's going to be divided into people who do and people who don't. The people who are trapped in the old way of thinking, but we're not going to be trapped that way. And the reason you do this is a couple of reasons. Firstly, you need to be a visionary. The investor has to believe that you've got some kind of insight into the future of the world that they want to be part of. And, and what you're trying to do is you're really trying to position your business so that you're both triggering fear and greed in the investor's mind and their heart. The greed is the opportunity of the business, you know, what they're going to be able to make out of the business, etc. The fear is the idea that they might get left behind. Look, in a really simple scenario, the fear is if they don't invest, they might miss out. But it's, it's less about the investment. It's more about being on the wrong side of history and not being able to see these things. So when you present your vision, what you're really trying to do there is encourage the investors and the people that you're presenting to to feel like they want to be on the right side. They want to be part of this solution. They want to be part of the future. So once you've got that right, then then the crucial kind of counterpunch, well not counterpunch, but the, the crucial next step is to then demonstrate how you're going to solve that problem. If you get these steps right, you're probably going to be, and, and the investors along the journey, then you're probably going to be sitting down and talking about an investment. So what I mean by this is, so this, this last stage, before we get into a little bit more detail, is all about, basically, it's the guts of your, your business. How are you going to solve the problem? And how are you going to take investors and your customers into your future vision? And so that this, this set at the start, that's basically the core to your pitch. This is the most important thing you have to get right. The next section we talk about, the next area is, Look, they're absolutely important, but they're not the same. This is the setup to a pitch deck, the story, creating that vision for the future and showing how you're going to be part of that future. That's where you basically either win or lose in a pitch. Everything that comes after that is important, but if you're not in the game, these next sections aren't going to make a difference. But let's just assume you've got the story, you've delivered a vision for the future. It's all based around the problem that you defined in that story and now you've demonstrated how your solution is going to be the way that we get to your vision of the future. Everyone's on board. We want to go to the next stage. What you're going to want to do at this point is you really want to talk about your secret source. So in your investor's mind now, they're looking at your business and saying, yes, I understand why you're doing this. Yes, I can see a problem. Yes, I can see where the future is going to be. And I've got an idea that you know th this might work. Your solution probably is the right way to do it. Now what starts to happen is 
there's a little bit of doubt. Well, why are you? Why are you the investor? Why are you the founder? Sorry, why, why are you as the founder the person who's going to be able to solve this? And this is the section I call the secret sauce. This is, this is the follow-up punch where after you've got them sort of on the ropes, you hit them with the idea that I've got this IP or I've got this little bit of kit that I've built or this kind of customer insight or something that you've got, something that you've got that can't be replicated. And we're not talking pure legals here. I'm not a fan of sort of I've got a trademark around or, or some kind of brand mark around what I want to do here. You don't want to be getting legals involved in a pitch like this. Um, and to that point, I should also mention what you don't want to be doing is having potential investors sign an NDA. Not many people do it anymore, but I still do meet founders who turn up wanting anybody who they pitch their business to to sign a non-disclosure agreement. Look, it's not done anymore for, for I guess, two reasons. One is if an investor signs an NDA, you could curb their potential to invest in future businesses just by simply getting them to sign that document. But probably more importantly is if you're getting someone to sign an NTA, that pretty much is an admission that you don't have any secret source. You don't have a way to defend your business. You don't have something that says you're special. Anyone could do it. So it's simply just a market opportunity that anyone can take. So that's why NDAs aren't important. And if you think of it like that, it's why the secret source section of your pitch deck is so important to convincing investors that it has to be you and you're the right person to solve it. After this, the next section of your deck, you want to, if possible, demonstrate some kind of traction. If you don't have any traction of your own, you're going to want to demonstrate some other way that you can get traction. But look, in these days with the lean startup models, it, there really isn't any excuse. Even if you've faked your product, even if you've, as I mentioned in sort of episode seven, I think of my podcast series, it was, you know, you want a wizard of Oz what you're doing. You want to, you want to fake the business, even if you put up a website and encourage people to go all the way down to purchase and then right at the end say, oh, it's a closed alpha, would you like to be notified? But that that intent where someone clicked the payment button and went through is a really strong indicator, even if you have no product. So there are ways to demonstrate traction and that traction will be the main driver, that, like the main variable that plugs into the value of your company. These days, most investors just for simplicity's sake and the way that they get people to come on board is by giving the idea a million dollar valuation. That's not say they're going to buy the idea for a million dollars. That's the, the starting position. How much money you've put in, in terms of time and effort to replicate. So whatever money might be required to get to the same point you are now often goes on top. So if you were to have, say, say invested $250,000 in research to get to this point, you might be able to say that your business then becomes worth 1.25. And then after that, it really comes down to traction. How many, if you've got customers, do you have revenue? Where are you on that journey? And that's where the price really starts to go up. So any kind of traction makes a difference. If you've got paying customers, if they're coming back, even better. If you've got NPS scores, which I've spoken about before. So if you can demonstrate high net promoter scores, referrals, these are the kind of things that's going to make a, a real difference to your pitch deck and that and, and the traction is really what separates the different points of a startup all the way up to the point where you know you wouldn't be considered a startup anymore you're a real business so this is the traction slide is the one where you demonstrate 
where you are in your evolution. And that really does help to define how much money you can ask and how much value you can put on the business. So after traction, that's where it's really good to sort of on the next slide tap into your revenue model. So this is where you work out, you basically demonstrate how you're going to charge customers and how you're going to grow. And this is where investors will start to get their notebooks out. They start to think about what's the cost of producing your assets or your product or your service and what's the margin and what's the size of the market that you demonstrated before and how much of that do they think you can capture. So look, if you can keep your revenue model simple, it's always going to be easier for someone to work out. If it's too complicated, it's going to be hard. I've discussed before, if you've got an ad-based revenue model where you're going to sell ads, you're pretty much not going to get any investment these days unless you've got absolutely ridiculous traction and scale, in which point you're probably not even talking about raising money in the traditional sense. You're very much talking about you know, building the business to, to exit to one of the big players like a Google or a Facebook, but that's pretty rare these days. If your business is based around some kind of platform transition, we need people to come and adopt a new way of doing something and leave, you know, not use their existing platforms. That's tough. Two-sided business models, I've spoken about that before. That's tough. But look, at the end of the day, in your revenue model, you can go right back to episode one where I spoke about you want to have lifetime value. You want to have the customer acquisition cost, so your CAC, uh, CAC. You want these kind of things in there so you can get an idea, okay, this is what we're going to pay to acquire customers. This is going to be the lifetime value. This is the payback window. And this is the way it's going to roll out. This is the price customers are going to pay. And people can start to build a model around that. Revenue models are always open to interpretation. Most investors will be the point where this is where they want to jump in and say, you could be charging more or less or subscription or not or one-off purchase, whatever it happens to be. But you need something in there. Because the next slide is we're going to get in and talk about and basically say, this is how much money I'm looking to raise. So let's assume we're raising money. This is where you need to come in and say, okay, I want X amount of money. So the amount of money you want to raise is almost always defined as the minimum amount. And you've got to be really careful about the minimum, the minimum amount you put on there because in practice, this minimum by definition should be the absolute minimum you can raise to achieve what you want with the next phase of the business, i.e. if you don't raise this much money, you can't move forward. So if you put $100,000 minimum raised in this round, you need to be able to say what you're going to spend that $100,000 on. You have to be able to define it. But if you were to raise $90,000, then you shouldn't be able to continue. So by saying you want to raise a minimum of $100,000 is saying, even if I raise 95,000, I can't go forward with this business. The other thing you can put in, you can put in a maximum and it does make sense. A maximum should be really one bracket above where you're at. So you might say, I'm raising $100,000 to do this. If I was to, you know, I would be willing to accept up to $150,000 because I could also do Y. And you want to define what that is. And that gives you a little bracket. Look, if you get the right pre-money valuation, that's the other reason why you might really take the 150,000, but that's, but that's your prerogative and that's, you're giving yourself some range to work in there. So I mentioned pre-money value. You've got to put that in there. You've got to basically say what you think your business is worth. By and large, early on, there's not a huge amount of negotiation that happens there. I mean, there, there is, but it, it only tends to be a lot of negotiation when the founders 
ideal valuation is a little bit unrealistic. So this is where you've got someone with not much more than an idea who thinks they've got a $3 million valued company. These are the kind of things that, you know, do have to be discussed. But generally speaking these days, there's some pretty good guidelines to stick to. So that's the pre-money valuation is the value of the company before you raise the funds. So in theory, if we had a million dollar pre-money valuation, raised $100,000, the post-money valuation is $1.1 million. So I hope that makes sense. If you're not raising money, it's also a great time. That's This is the point where you need to have an ask. There should always be something that you need in your business. So even if you're not raising money, you might say, I am looking for an Android app developer to come on and work on a project or someone to work in sales or someone to work in my PowerPoint presentation or whatever it happens to be, but always have an ask. Even if you're not asking for money, practice, but you are practicing, you're pitching, you're putting it out there, make sure you've got an ask. Every opportunity to say, I'm looking for this, you'll be surprised what happens. If you don't ask, you usually don't get. Right, so now we're gonna get into looking at three famous companies original pitch deck. So doing a bit of review of those and hopefully giving you a few tips. And like I said before, a little bit of confidence that if these guys can raise this much money with these pitch decks, um, maybe we're in a pretty good chance for ourselves. So the first company is YouTube. What I would say is if you'd like to take a look at these, head over to fractal.com.au slash episode 10. And I'll put links through to the what I've found is the original pitch decks for each of these three companies. So you can just have a look later on or you can click through while I'm sort of talking about a few of the different slides that are in there. So we'll start by looking at YouTube to get a sense of, well, just what pitch decks used to look like in the olden days, really. The thing about YouTube's pitch deck for me that really stands out is that the entire, I think the value proposition that they're getting across and how they got their investment is all around the company purpose at the start and the market timing opportunity. So the company purpose they've listed is to become the primary outlet for user-generated video content on the internet and to allow anyone to upload, share, and browse this content. So that's their vision statement, the company purpose. I think for them, this is kind of crucial to their pitch. Early on, there's not a huge amount of detail behind this, really what they do is they define their vision of what they want to do. They define the problem on the next slide, which is that video files are, you know, that video files are too large to email, video files are too large to host, there's no standardization of video file formats, and videos exist in isolated files. It's a pretty simplistic pitch. It's, it's not flashy, there's not too much there. They've just basically defined a problem. And you can tell now that that problem was very much a problem of the time. You know, this isn't the same problem we're having these days. So YouTube is very much an opportunistic pitch. The next page you get into is the solution. So we spoke about this. This is where you basically, once you've sort of spoke, spoken to the vision, the problem, and the vision of where you see the market going to, then we talk about the solution. So that customers will upload their videos to YouTube, they do all the code encoding. They talk about Flash, which I find to be quite interesting, and that they're going to plug a community into it. And I'm sure there's a lot of commentary that goes around that. So you can see this is quite a concise deck. Three slides in, and actually you've got a really good feel for where you're going to. Now we get into the market size. How big is this opportunity? And for me, this is very much, the market size is very much around market timing for YouTube. There were businesses that tried to do this before, their businesses tried to do it after. Timing was probably the most important thing for YouTube to get right. They talk about the competition, 
Interestingly, they mentioned Google Video as part of the competition, who ultimately became the acquirer. They talk about their roadmap for the product development, sales distribution, gets a bit boring. They talk about the team. The team raising this money in San Francisco, in America, a team that is based around PayPal makes a massive difference. So it's kind of like the the team here, the founding team would have been probably like the third element. So that would have made this pitch totally compelling. In fact, I think for a lot of people, they would have been investing in these guys just because they'd been there at PayPal. So, you know, you can have a look through those slides yourselves. They're not pretty. They're not glamorous. There's not too much there. Um, Without a doubt, there would be a lot more detail as I open up discussions. But you can see that format's not a million miles away from what I was talking about before. And I think you think about, look, I don't think this is a great example of a pitch deck. But it is an example that if you can get a few things right, a few elements that we spoke about right, you can cover over the elements you don't know. This is the thing for us. At the end of the day, we are a startup business. We're innovators. There's things that we don't know. But if there are some things that we are absolutely certain of, that's what investors are going to sort of align themselves with. So the second pitch deck to look at is from um, Buffer. Buffer is a great tool, social media tool. I think a lot of you are probably using it, or at least you've heard of it. So I thought it'd be interesting to have a look at Buffer's original pitch deck here. I think you can tell with Buffer when you get into slide one, they've gone straight in with the timing as well. It's all about social. It's about the trend. It's about this is the vision for where the world's going to be. This is what's going to be the case. And it's not so much the problem that they started with here. It's the vision of why social media is going to be important and you don't want to miss out that fear and greed idea. And, you know, Buffer's obviously right. I don't think it was that big of a leap, but that was what they were banking on. The next slide they get into is, I mean, they've got the title here, which is how do you use social to drive traffic? I would say this is where they're building their story. This is where they're talking about what your day looks like, how you would go onto Twitter, how you go on LinkedIn, how you do all the different social platforms, you got to wait for the right time and then you've got to be free at that time to make that tweet or to make that LinkedIn post. So there would have been a real story behind this. So following my format before, Buffer's probably just moved those two around in, in a different order. They've gone with what they feel is stronger, which is a social trend. And then they've kind of got into that, that story building on the next slide. After that, they get into their secret source, their solution, how they're actually going to do it. And they give a bit of a product example Buffer would have been very strong in this part. This is kind of the the premise of their whole business. They have a great slide, number five, on traction. They've only got 800 paying users. So you think about where these guys are now and where they were, and it, it does give you an idea of the importance of that early traction, sort of changing the value. But, you know, they talk here about the number of paying users, only 800, but it's 150,000 in annual revenue, at the current run rate, 97% margins on those variable costs. That's probably the bit that gets investors really excited about a business like this and growing at 40% per month. That's the other thing that I think makes a real difference. They've got their milestones, what they've achieved. So what's Buffer doing here? I mean, we spoke about before, it's all about getting that huge value behind the company. So they're really trying to increase what their pre-money value is on this particular round. They touch on their business model how they provide it, the freemium, what their churn rate might be, etc. So again, a bit more advanced as a business from what you know, YouTube was pitching theirs, but very much into those metrics. And this is the sign of a company that's going a bit further on. They've got a bit of product market fit 
and sort of expanding. And then they just touch back on, they kind of loop back onto the social media landscape, reiterating those points they made before, in case you've sort of forgotten the story. Uh, so before the story, they spoke about the opportunity and just making sure that fear and greed was really prevalent in all the investors they were taking this deck to. So uh, look, I, I, I like the Buffer deck. I think it's closer to what we're seeing these days. And you can tell that because it's not as old as say the YouTube pitch. Finally, the third one I've found here is on, um, is what at the time was called Air Bed and Breakfast, which we now know as being Airbnb. And I think you know, this is the classic, This you can tell with this pitch deck, when you look at it, they hadn't really figured out their business model yet. So this pitch deck by rights couldn't have been exactly right. They couldn't, they couldn't have known everything. So everything they put in here wasn't the end correct solution. This was just getting them in the right direction. So for me, when I look at this pitch deck, I'm trying to work out what were the elements that investors heard who heard it correctly that pulled out and said, okay, that's the element I'm going to be investing in. And they seem to have ignored some of the others or maybe they did believe in it, but you know, turns out some of these elements weren't correct. Airbnb, really simple, launches with a problem. They get into the problem of price, hotels, and there's sort of no easy way currently. The price is kind of logical, but you don't really want to build a business competing on price. I've spoken about this before. It's kind of the poor man's marketing option. What jumps out at me in the problem is hotels leave you disconnected from the city and its culture. And I think that's that middle problem of the three they define is really the one that Airbnb discovered. That's actually the problem we're solving. I, I'm a big believer with a startup business that you can actually only solve one problem at a time. If you try to solve two problems, you're facing such an uphill battle to get your business to work because you're never quite sure which element you're trying to solve or you haven't solved yet is the one holding back your business. It's completely possible that you fixed one element, but because you have to prove two for your business to work, it doesn't get over the line. So my big advice here is always just solve one problem. I don't like the fact that Airbnb listed three, but I think it's kind of clear when you look at their business now, what they've solved isn't really about price. There are cheaper options. What they've done is found your way to get you connected to that city so that you're not removed in a sort of large brand hotel. So after this, they get straight into solutions. So you can see with Airbnb, this is much closer to the slick way that we present investor slides now. So they're being really clinical with their with their titling of slides. So solution, saving money, making money, sharing culture. I don't think they had their solution exactly right here, but you can see at least from their presentation, they were being quite precise in what each slide was talking about. After that, they talk about their market validation. Now, their market validation isn't talking about what they've been able to achieve. They're actually talking about other metrics they've been able to pull together to show, in theory, that what they're going to build is going to work. So you can see a little bit of smoke and mirrors here from Airbnb with this pitch deck. Then they talk about the market size. Again, you know, market size, that's kind of getting that greed going. What's the opportunity? How big could this get? So nice and clear. Next slide is called product. So this is what they're going to do. This is going to be how they're going to deliver it. They really don't have a huge amount of detail here. It's just sort of three screens. I'm sure they talk a lot about it, but the idea is it's really simple. You search by a city, you review the listings, and you book it. Not a great slide in terms of presentation. I assume there's a lot of talking behind the back of it, but again, 
just in terms of formatting, you can see how, at least with the presentations, they've got really well-defined slides that follow the format we spoke about before. The next slide is business model. So we've spoken about this, the idea of how they're gonna actually make their money. So the average fee they're gonna get and how that's gonna build out over the life of their business and how they grow it. So this is, you know, in theory, you're presenting this, you've got someone really sort of hooked into your idea, your vision, they understand the problem, you've painted a picture around it, then you can kind of go from there. I think with Airbnb, and of course you don't know how this was actually presented, but I don't think that they, in this presentation anyway, really created much of a story at the front. And yet with hotel and travel, you can just imagine if you were doing this again, you would create a fantastic story at the front. The idea of sort of dropping into a, a great city, but you know, being locked into a hotel, a five-star hotel, and not really knowing what it was like. So I think there's a, there's a good story here. I'm just gonna assume that they presented it as opposed to putting it in these slides, because I can't see it. A little bit next slide on market adoption. They talk about the competitions. They do a lot of marketplace stuff, which is pretty normal, but you kind of see those slides and go, yeah, okay, fine. It, it, it's, when you present a market, you're ultimately just presenting your view of the market. So it should tie in pretty closely to your vision of the future. Competitive advantages there on slide 10. This is the secret source. So this is the point where they're trying to say, we're the ones that have got a, have got a model that's going to work and continue here. So I see slide 10 competitive advantages as being you know, their version or my version of this slide is the secret source slide. And, um, and that's it. So look, you can see everything there from YouTube, fairly good, well thought out, but old. I mean, you know, it's not the kind of pitch deck you would imagine would raise any money these days through to Airbnb, which is a lot more clinical in the way they approached it. But I don't think there's a huge amount of gloss there. I think they could have done a lot more with the stories. And then Buffer, I think Buffer's closest to the modern day pitch. They've led with their strongest position. You can see no one is upfront talking about their team. They've got an opening slide, which has the company name on it, but they're getting straight into that story, straight into that problem. And that's why these days, the format that I went through before is, is fairly well locked in. And, and that's what most investors are looking to see. So like I said, I'll, I'll post the links in the content on the Fractal website for you so you can follow up. Hopefully uh, moving forward, my plan is to have different topics, different ideas, bring different professionals in. I'm gonna try to do the interviewing format I'll do my best to keep to my once a week. I'll be, I mean, I will keep doing once a week. Next week might be a bit of a push, but we'll see how we go. Very keen to get feedback from people. Very keen to find out the elements that you like, what you don't like. Please feel free to connect on LinkedIn. Just send me a direct message. You don't have to make it public. Any kind of feedback would be fantastic. Just to guess, reiterate what my idea for this podcast is, I'm looking to do, to give either advice from myself or other Marcoms professionals that'll help you give you actionable insights. And I want to use professionals that have got huge amounts of experience and then work on ways to take that experience that they've had with big brands and products and launches and advertising campaigns and mold that into a way where we can take nuggets out where founders with limited budgets can apply those same techniques and ideas and get some success from it. So thanks for listening again this week, and I look forward to talking to you all again next week. Cheers. Thanks for listening to that latest episode, guys. I've just got two quick favors to ask of you here right at the end. 
Firstly, if you have any questions, please shoot them through. This podcast only exists because I answer questions that listeners send in. So if you head along to fractal.com.au slash questions, that'll redirect you to the latest episode and you can drop your questions down there. Those questions you submit become the basis for each episode. So if you've got a question around SEO, paid search, growth hack marketing, PR, brand positioning, market segmentation, anything you might like to know that's going to help your business, drop the question down there and I'll try to answer it on the next episode. If you don't have any questions, that's absolutely fine. The other thing you can do is head on over to fractal.com.au slash subscribe. Subscribing to this podcast not only delivers each episode straight through to your smartphone, but it really helps me reach a bigger audience all the time. That subscription really helps me out. So if you can do that, I'd really appreciate it. Thanks a lot for your time again and see you next week.